Okay, y'all, um, open your Bibles to John chapter 2. I'm going to tell you, I don't mind telling you what I'm about to say. This passage was, um, I'd say it another way that I can't say up here, this passage uh, moved me around a lot this week. This passage was very rough with me this week. Uh, this was a very hard passage. Uh, the meaning of the passage, the central meaning of the passage, I actually told the staff, I studied it on Tuesday, told the staff on Wednesday, this is what I think it is, but no commentary, no scholar that I've read even came close to that view. So I thought, oh well, maybe that's not it. I kept wrestling with the text and I went through 11 reference scholarly works on this text. There was one commentary that I'm not particularly fond of, and it just sat there and sat there and stared at me all week, and then finally, Friday, I picked it up. It's my least favorite commentary on John. It is now my most favorite commentary on John. It actually outlaid the same exact view. So now all of you are really, really interested, right? So there's me and this dude from Tyndall who interpret this passage a certain way, and we're going to look at that passage today. Uh, aren't you excited? I mean, there can be like 20 other scholars that don't agree a lick with what I'm about to say, but who cares, right? You got me and you got Tyndall. Okay, Sports Illustrated came out with an article this month called Learning to be Human Again. Anybody get Sports Illustrated anymore? I mean, I got those as a kid. I, I, don't, I don't even buy magazines. No, we just do them all. Brent, Brent, of course. Brent, dude, all right. It tells the story of a guy named Todd Maravich. Anybody remember that guy? And his dad, Marv, uh, SI, I'm going to call that now for Sports Illustrated, called Todd America's first test tube quarterback. Otherwise, he was known as Robo Quarterback, the Robo QB. Um, Marv, Todd's dad, stretched his son's hamstrings at one month old. Uh, Marv had him teething on frozen kidneys and lifting medicine balls before he could walk. all to build his quarterback, right? SI did its first story on Maravich when he was 18 years old. He was a senior. He was being touted all over the country. He was the highest recruited kid in the country at that time. The cover story was, bred to be a superstar. And there was this famous line in it that is done when people interviewed him for years and years and years. People would come up and say, hey, is this true? Is this true? And here's the famous line. It said, he has never eaten a Big Mac, an Oreo, or even a Ding Dong. End quote. Today, there's lots of controversy surrounding his story, his family. It's, it's, it's a big mess. But the family agrees about one point. Quote, Marv, his dad, knew one way to live, and that was through sports. And his son would commit to that way completely. All Marv wanted to do was mold athletes, and Todd was his favorite piece of clay. Marinovich went on as an 18-year-old to start at USC. Then he went and was recruited in the first round, drafted in the first round to the Raiders. I think it was Los Angeles at the time. And then the wheels fell off. He became a drug addict. He had gotten arrested so many times that yet again on drug possession, he was brought into the James A. Music Minimum Security Facility at Irvine, California, that when he came in, the guards we're playing the theme song to Welcome Back Cotter, a 1970s sitcom hit. Marinovich is now approaching 50. 
and his life has been ravaged by drugs. In the wake of almost 50 years of life, there's a wreckage of relationships everywhere. Todd, now in 2019, in this article for Sports Illustrated, is trying to interpret his life. And this is what he says. Todd has learned a term, a new term, called performance-based love. To describe the trauma of his youth. Yeah, the only time perceived or real that I felt loved is when I was performing, which is super sick. End quote. SI said he believes that if he had not turned to drugs, he would have killed himself. Todd says, oh yeah, that's a no-brainer. I don't know what else makes sense. A performance-based love ruins lives, wrecks relationships. And so how, how do you end a performance-based life and performance-based relationships? In other words, how do you become human again? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. From John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all, please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you for this textual terrain. We thank you that this is next, sovereignly, in your plan of what we are to hear. I thank you that you shine on the page. And I ask that for all of us here right now, you would cause us to experience the wonder of the reality of this word now. Would we re-experience this text just like we would have been there 2,000 years ago? Holy Spirit, would you grant this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this past summer, 2018, is when Todd began to intellectually understand his childhood trauma led to his adulthood addiction. Now, that's this past summer, 2018, he intellectually started understanding that. But this month, 2019, SI reports that he's beginning to see the emotional effects of it. 
Uh, he remembers when his dad called him Timmy after Tiny Tim, who was a disabled boy in A Christmas Carol, and the painful taunting of being called Timmy, Timmy by his dad. He tells his therapist a story he's never told anyone, a time when his dad violently grabbed his football jersey off his back, ripped it off his back, and then ripped off Maverovich on the back of the jersey and said, you don't deserve to wear this name on your back. I mean, how? How do you end performance-based love in life and in relationships? I mean, some of you are thinking, geez, Jeff, you picked the most extreme case possible. I mean, you picked a really, really bad dad to illustrate this point. Okay, maybe. But what if the Bible picked the best dad possible to illustrate that point? What if the Bible picked the best people on the planet to illustrate that point? What if the Bible picked the most moral people possible, the people that are on the more are on the honor code committees at school, the people who are on the ethics committees in all levels of government, well, maybe not that, but it's just something. <laughs> the people who hold leadership posts, any leadership post, they hold a leadership post because they're trusted and they're devoted and they're, they're hardworking and they're reliable and, and they're disciplined and people look up to them. What about the people that you want your children to become? What about the most successful people on the planet? What if the Bible picked them as examples of performance-based love? What would that say? And then what would that say about you and me? Because we're just mediocre people. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is such an interesting description, the Passover of Jews. Every scholar that I did read, remember, there's like 11, 12 of them. They all commented on that. They're all like, why does he say, why does he mention the Jews? Some commentaries say, well, he's just being snarky and critical because he's getting to the point where he's souring on religious people, and he's souring on the Jews, and that's not what's going on. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There is no souring yet. So why would John prolifically write about it now? And then others say, well, he's got to be writing to Gentiles who don't understand the Jews' Passover, and so he's trying to educate them. And the answer to that is, are you kidding me? Who in the whole empire doesn't know about the Passover of the Jews? It is a major worldwide event. People are leaving all these countries in the empire to go to Jerusalem three times a year. This is a major movement. It's a major migration of people. Everybody knows about the Passover of the Jews, so why mention it? And here's the answer. Because John is setting up a Jew and Gentile contrast. John is setting up a contrast between good dads and bad dads. John is setting up a contrast between good kids and bad kids. What's going on? I mean, look at the craziness of 14 through 16. This is Rambo Jesus, or MMA Jesus. Take your pick. It's startling, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely shocking. I mean, look what he's doing. He's going in, and he picks out 
He picks out money changers. He picks out people that are buying and selling. And, and it says he's overturning tables. He's taking a whip and cracking it and driving the animals out. I mean, should, is Jesus committing a felon here? Should the police be called? Or how about PETA? Should PETA be called? Look at the way the animals are being treated. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Me and Tyndall know what's going on. Here it is. Jesus is exposing the best people on the planet to be like Marv. Mervinovich's dad. In other words, this passage is trying to convince you and me that the best people on the planet, the very best, the most respected, the most religious, the most, let's just put it this way, the people that we're looking at are more holy than you will ever be for the rest of your life in one day. They are more committed, more devoted, more discipled, more trained in the scriptures than you will ever be. They are more obedient and more serious about their relationship to God than you will ever be. They are more law-keeping, more down to the detail of how to live a holy life than any of us could ever dream of. They are looked up to. They are the rock stars. When they walked into a room, the crowd parted. When they walked into the room, they owned the room. When they walked into the room, they were the most powerful people in the room. When they walked into the room, everybody wanted their kids to be like them. The best people on the planet is what we're looking at right here. And the best people on the planet, this passage is trying to say, are building their lives around a performance-based love. Building their relationships around a performance-based love. And if they are, so are you. Do you see the word temple in verse 13 through 17? Here's where I'm going to prove this view. See the word temple, 13 through 17? Now find the word temple, 19 through 21. You're going to have to have a Bible. If you need one, grab underneath because we're going to do a little work here. All right, I want you to see temple in verse 13 through 17. It's different. It's not different in the English language. It's different in the Greek language. 19 through 21 is different. Here's what's going on. In temple MMA Jesus, the temple of MMA Jesus is the outer temple. In those verses, 13 through 17, he's walking into the outer temple. He's walking into the courts of the Gentiles. But in 19 through 21 is the my body temple. Jesus is saying, this temple, though, is my body. And this is a different temple. This word for the Greek temple means the holy of holies. It means the innermost place of the temple. It means where the highest potency of holiness dwells on the planet. That part of the temple is where God, who is everywhere and transcendent, and he's above and beyond his creation, he localizes his presence on earth. It's the new garden of Eden. It's where heaven and earth touch. It's where God comes down and he shows up. The best people on the planet are putting the necessary equipment for worship. You had to have sacrifices, y'all. This is where I differ from the other interpretations. Everybody else, just so you know, everybody else thinks this is about purity of worship. I don't think it's about purity of worship. You had to have sacrifices to do pure worship. And you had to have money changers. 
Listen, people are traveling from all over the world. They're not carrying their animals with them. They wouldn't survive. They're purchasing their animals to do pure worship on the spot. That's not a bad practice. This is not impure practice. You have money changers there because people are coming from all over the world. They have all different kinds of coinage. In order for them to purchase the sacrifices, they had to have money that they could change into the local currency. The issue here is not purity of worship. The issue is the best people on the planet are blocking out the Gentiles. The best people on the planet put the liturgy of worship in their court so they couldn't worship. In other places, Jesus says, you've turned my house of prayer into a den of robbers and other synoptic accounts. A house of prayers where communication happens, a house of prayers where God speaks through his word and people answer back with an answering speech called prayer and that is the only place on the planet that Gentiles can be reached by God and they're blocking the way. In other words, how could these good people do such a thing? And the answer is there. It's, it, you know the answer. Because they're good people. And the Gentiles are not. They are ripping Marinovich off the jersey of the Gentiles and saying, you're not good enough to be here. Performance-based love. You know that when we as a church, if we don't, let's just talk about personally and let's talk about as a church. I'm going to just talk about as a church since the context here is church. If we don't welcome, if we don't make friends with, if we don't make room in Redeemer for all kinds of people. Now I'm talking about obvious, the obvious ones, right? Different races, different nationalities, different cultures, different colors. That's right but I'm also talking about different personalities. You know, the ones that you and I get annoyed with. You know, the ones that, you know, there's a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum of relational gifts. There's the one you like to talk to and the one that's really awkward and you don't. Uh, there is social status. Everybody comes in with different social status. Everybody has uh, a different economic level. Some are very economically mobile and have large, they never worry about their bank account, they never worry about money. Some folks, that's all they worry about. And then it doesn't matter whether you're from North Waco or South Waco or East Waco or West Waco, or if you watch Bernie, which I love by the way, there's this map of Texas, North Texas, South Texas, East Texas and West Texas, all kinds of Texans. If we're not welcoming for everybody, making friends with everybody and anybody and with all kinds of sins and problems, in other words, people come in with all kinds of issues and all kinds of different degrees of wrestling and problems and hurts and pains and doubts and views and confusions, politically, theologically, morally, educationally, I mean, good night the gamut. 
But if we don't welcome, if we don't make friends, if we don't make room, (laughs) then we are the good people. And we're a performance-based, loved church. And we block others from God. And don't miss what Jesus is doing in this passage. Please don't miss it. He's driving out performance-based love. That's the point of the text. He's driving it out. He's overturning it. He's driving it. He's scattering it. In other words, he's judging performance-based love. Not in my house. Rambo Jesus. How do we end performance-based love in our life and relationships? A raging beast, Todd now says of his father. Now, he would never have said that before. He wouldn't dare say that before. He never told his mom and his sister that his dad hit him, beat him, never told him. Instead, this is what he did as a little 10-year-old. He surveyed his childhood home. He looked at his childhood home, and he surveyed it, and he goes, he saw the fury of his father... He saw the worries of his mother. He saw the emotional abandonment of his sister because his sister got no attention because his dad put all the attention on him. And this is what he concludes. Todd convinced himself before he even turned 10, the only way to fix this is me. I just have to play better. The only way to fix this is me. I just have to play better. Some of you know what that feels like in the depths of your bones because you have been trying to play better your whole life. The only one who can fix this is me. I just have to play better, God. I'll do better, God. And you do this in school, and you do this with your gifts and your talents and your abilities, whether it's art or music or an athlete. And you do this in your career. You know, you're a young adult and you have this career and you're going to, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to play better. And then you do this to get tenure. And then you do this when you got it because you still got to maintain it. And you strive your whole life to try to do better. And you wonder, man, will this ever end? You know why you wonder that? Because intellectually, you know you're doing it, but intellectually doesn't keep you from doing it. Just understanding didn't change your life. Will this ever end? And then others of us here just aren't convinced that a performance-based love is a problem in our life and in our relationships. And I get that. You, you might be saying, it's not an issue for me. And I'm like, okay, but let's, let's look at it a little more closely. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, in all four Gospels, people ask Jesus for signs. They're not asking They're demanding, just so we look at that. They're demanding. And and Jesus never responds positively, and he never answers the demand of someone who's demanding a sign from him. Isn't that interesting? In fact, he does just the opposite. At one time, he says, you know what? It's, It's the wicked people that demand signs from God. And then he says this word perverse, and we immediately think, oh, that's scary, but it just means curved in on yourself. And he says, people who are curved in on themselves demand a sign from God And you and I, we have to ask ourselves, why is that such a bad thing? Seriously, 
Why is asking for a sign from God a bad thing or demanding it? I mean, the person wants to connect with God. The person believes in God, at least. The person's trying to figure out how to relate to God. The person's trying to say, God, are you real? Will you work? Is this all for nothing or not? I mean, it's a, it's a very real thing, so why would it be bad? And the answer is this. Why would it be so harmful? And the answer is this. Um, I'm making up this name. This is nobody in, that I know of, so please don't think this. Susie doesn't sleep around. She told God she'd wait till marriage, like the Bible says to. So she's been waiting a long time. No man, no Mr. Right, no marriage. And now she's so overwhelmed with anger and bitterness. I've done what I'm supposed to do. God, you haven't. You haven't kept your end of the deal. You've failed me. And then her anger and her, um, her bitterness starts to consume her, just eat her up because she looks around at others and she says, she slept around, and she's married. He slept around, and he's married, and he has five kids. Susie is demanding a sign from God. Her sign is marriage. Her performance earns it. Her sexual purity earns it. Her sexual purity performs for the sign of marriage. The religious leaders believe deep in their bones, we deserve a sign. So who are you? You come in here and you clean out the temple, the, the outer temple of the Gentiles. Okay, so, you know, what are you? Notice they didn't call the police because they had temple police. They could have taken him, well, I doubt they would have been able to take him unless Jesus said, you can take me. But they could have called the temple police. They could have, they, do you think they ever had problems with people in the temple area? They know how to handle these things. But what Jesus was doing was so profound and touched at such the heart of reality, it took their breath away and they had to figure out, okay, you're different. And they demanded Jesus to give them a sign because good people, the best people on the planet, deserve a sign. People that are really, really close to God get signs. People that have spiritual attainments and have holy lives, have moral goodness, deserve a sign from God. People that have good looks and work hard and are disciplined and get up early and organize and schedule their life deserve signs. People who have good causes deserve signs. People who have good vision statements and missions, churches deserve signs. We've done what we're supposed to do. Give us a sign. 
If we do what we're supposed to do, but we, we don't get our sign from God, then you know what we do? We blame God because we've done what we're supposed to do, but God didn't give us a sign. Or, you know, in our house, we just blame mom, right? You know, the dog, you know, the dog ate the shoe. Mom's fault. You know, the TV's not working. The Xbox's not working. Mom! There's no food. Mom! Right? <laughs> I got five kids. I've seen it five times, and I see it come out of my mouth. Honey! <laughs> Where's the unit? Right? When... We do what we're supposed to do, but we don't get a sign. You only can blame God. You only can blame other people. They blocked you. They got in the way. It's just what we do. But if we don't do what we're supposed to do and therefore don't get the sign, we blame ourselves. We beat ourselves Parents beat themselves up for their kids' way of trajectory of living. And then it goes on and on and on and on and on. Performance-based love ruins lives, it wrecks relationships. How do we end performance-based love in our life and our relationships? Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. What's happening here is incredible. It's a major breakthrough. It is a major breakthrough in ending performance-based love. How do we know this? In other words, something's happening to these guys. Something's happening. Something's changing. And it's incredible. The text is actually trying to encourage you, saying this. Listen, y'all, it can happen in your life. You can have major breakthroughs. There is the ability to you for you to have a breakthrough in ending performance-based love in your life and in your relationships. That's what this text is saying. Because remember, when John talks about faith, when John talks about trust, when John talks about belief, he uses a preposition called ace, into, or he puts it in the dative, into. So what he's saying is this for you geek people. What he's saying is this. When John talks about believing in Jesus, what's happening is you are believing into him. When you trust Jesus for John, you are connecting to Jesus. You are uniting to Jesus when you trust him. And you know what happens when you unite to Jesus? Your thinking changes. Your feelings change. Your hopes change. Your loves change. Your worship changes. Your behavior changes changes because you just united to the changer and this text is saying something pretty remarkable notice what it's saying though it's using this it's literally saying this they believed into the scripture they believed into the words of jesus so what's so fascinating is that they are trusting Scripture words and the words of Jesus in such a way that they've connected to it, they've united to it, and it's ending, and it's made, having major breakthroughs in the ending of performance-based love in their life. So what words are they connecting to? That's the question of the text, isn't it? What are the good news words? What are the God words? And here they are. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered. He just drove out. He drove out performance-based love in the court of the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, they remembered they remembered 
Psalm 69.9, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is unbelievable. Jesus is doing this, and they have, oh, my word, and they trust those words, and they connect to those words, and it changes their life. What are these words? They were written in Psalm 69.9. They're written by David, a king. I want you to see, though, it's interesting. Notice the change from temple to house in this text. Everything's been temple, temple, temple. Why do you go to house? Why the change to house to describe the temple? Well, the reason why is because you're describing the house because now you're moving in a more intimate setting. Now you're moving into a more relational setting. Now you're moving in a more home where everybody longs to be. A place where you are loved. The safest place on the planet. That's why Jesus says in the verse right before this, he says, my father's house. And now we're into family. And now we're into home. And now we're into the safest place on the planet. And now we're into brothers and sisters and moms and dads. And we're into intimate love and safety and relationships. Now we're into a whole other world. And everyone longs for that. And everyone on the planet is zealous for it, whether they realize it or not. The image here is Jesus is zealous for Gentiles. They're watching him clean out performance-based love, and they go, he, he is zealous. He loves messed up people. He loves sinners. This is a non-performance love. This is a grace-based love. As one author says, it's a one-way love. Only one way. Doesn't matter whether you love them or not. It's one way. It's grace-based. It's Jesus' gracious love. And that ends performance-based love in life and relationships. And whenever Jesus' gracious love moves to a relationship, it ends performance-based relationship. Whenever it moves into your career, it ends performance-based careers. Whenever it moves into athletics, it ends performance-based athletics. It completely reorients because when you believe into grace-based love, you've now connected to grace-based love. You've now united to Jesus and you think differently, you feel differently, you handle money differently. You are no longer doing things in order to get loved. You are now doing things because you are. The disciples believed into this. The disciples connected to this. It changed their lives. But notice that they, it's in the present tense, so you know what that means? Because those of you that are really, really tricky or you, you, know, you Bible geeks out there, because I know who you are, this is the second time they've believed into Jesus, and it's not the last. Are they becoming Christians over and over again? No. No. They're believing in a gracious God and a gracious work of Jesus 
for the rest of their life because that's the Christian life. It's even more stunning. I'm going to give you the literal reading of 69.9, not what's read here. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Do you see what's going on in the original text? Past tense. Look what's going on here. Future tense. Zeal for your house will consume me. So something's happening in the future that's going to consume him. So it goes like this. In other words, Jesus is saying, my love for you will destroy me. My love for you will end me. End me. Disintegrate me. Burn me up. My love for you will not allow you to be consumed. I will take your place. I mean, isn't that why it says 22, when therefore he was raised from his dead, his disciples went, oh my word. That's how he loves us. He's loved us to the bitter end. And if he loves me like that, if he loves me with a grace-based love like that, Everything else is just living. This is God's sign for you. Look what the text says. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show for these things? They demanded a sign. Here's Jesus' answer. You want to know what the sign is? Here's the sign. Destroy, destroy this temple. And just so you know, he's speaking about his body. That's what the text says. You want to know what the sign is, you best people on the planet, you addicted to performance-based love, you know what the sign is, destroy this body and I will raise it up. That's the sign. My love for you will not allow you to be consumed. I will take your place. Breathe into that. So, to all you Susies out there, your sign isn't marriage. That's not your sign. By the performance of your sexual purity. Now, please hear me. I said this in the first service. I guess I got to say it to here. I'm all for sexual purity. The Bible's all for sexual purity. I'm not saying no to sexual purity, so don't say I'm saying that, please. Your sign isn't marriage in the perform- by the performance of sexual purity to finally get loved, to finally be loved. Your sign is Jesus' gracious love for you. And to all you John Maraviches out there, your sign isn't your dad's approval. By the performance of football or by the performance of being tough or by the performance of all kinds of sick things so that you can finally be loved. Your sign is Jesus' love for you, his gracious love for you. Believe into that. And you will have major breakthroughs in ending performance-based love in your life and in your relationships. Amen.